What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. It's the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. We would love to answer the questions that you have about the Catholic faith, especially if you're a non-Catholic. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us outside of North America, please dial 1 and then 205 271 2985. And of course, you can always send us an email. The address for that, ctc at ewtn.com, ctc at ewtn.com. Charles Beery is our producer. Michael, Michael, not Michael, Matthew, Matt Kabinsky is our phone screener. And also uh, Jeff Burson handling social media for us today. And if you want to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, just put that question in the comments box. Matt will see it. Jeff will see it. I'm really getting messed up here. Anyway, one way or the other, we'll get that question on the air for you. I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? Very good. I think I'm ready for the weekend. What about you? I am ready for the weekend. Just a little bit distracted. But the main thing here is to take people's phone calls, answer these questions about, uh, well, especially what is stopping you from becoming a Catholic, right? Well, nothing. I'm already Catholic. Excellent. There we go. Next. we can, we can move on with that then. Here's a fascinating letter from Frank. Hi, Dr. Anders. I have been trying to speak to former Catholics that I know who have left the church to join a non-denominational chapel, specifically Plymouth Brethren. I want to talk to them about salvation. When they were in the Catholic Church, they never opened a Bible, but now they use the Bible to defend every position they hold on Christian beliefs. They insist that salvation is achieved by faith alone and putting your trust in Jesus, as found in the Bible. Their position is works don't matter, and they are convinced that they are saved. The funny thing is, they also preach many of the same things found in Catholicism, but they say those things won't save you, but only help you obtain rewards in heaven. Can you please comment on what drives them to hold this position? Thanks and God bless, Frank. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate the question. So uh, Plymouth Brethren are very strict on the sola scriptura doctrine, the doctrine that the Bible alone is the rule of faith. And some other characteristics of Plymouth Brethren is they, they typically don't have professional clergy. They have lay clergy that, that, that will, you know, preach and administer their ordinances. They don't call them sacraments. Okay. Um, and uh, and I, I went to seminary with some of these guys. And I have to confess that all Protestants, all evangelicals read the Bible and consider it the rule of faith. But I personally found the Plymouth Brethren uh, to be... Well, impressive with the degree uh, to which they were committed to their principles and knew the Bible sort of backwards and forwards. I mean, most evangelicals know the Bible pretty well. These guys that I went to school with, man, they really knew it. They could quote chapter and verse at you about anything. Um, and uh, so there's a, you know, there's a culture of primitivism. And, uh, you know, if I might say it, in my experience personally, this is just inter- sure. inter- interpersonal, sure. a kind of perfectionism about it, a kind of real pride at being, you know— 
again, lots of Protestants will claim to be, you know, we're the real McCoy. Uh, we're the real Sola Scriptura Protestants. We're the people who are most thoroughgoing in our Reformation. But they, they, my experience of them interpersonally was they kind of had that disposition, you know, exponentially ramp, ramped up, like a, just a real commitment to those kind of principles, very proud of those distinctives in their tradition. Okay. Um, and, of course, that also includes a, a sort of radical commitment to the uh, the so-called solas of the Reformation, not only sola scriptura, but but uh, but sola fide as well, the doctrine of faith alone. And here's the great irony, and it's this is my opinion, of course. The great irony is that the Bible doesn't actually teach either of those doctrines, right? The ones that they claim to find in the Bible alone are, yeah. are not actually biblical doctrines. They have learned them from their tradition, right? And they would cringe to hear me say that, but that that's why, right? They have a distinctive culture. Um, that, uh, you know, is, um, I wouldn't, probably wouldn't go so far as to say it's sectarian in relationship to other Protestants, but maybe tilting that way, a kind of, you know, real pride at being the ones who finally got it right within the Protestant Sola Scriptura framework, and that culture sustains, um, you know, those commitments, and that that's typically true with most religious communities of any kind, that the more close-knit the, the culture, uh, the more tightly your friend group is knitted around a particular community, the more seriously you take the doctrinal commitments. There's a sociologist out of Baylor named Stroop who did an article a number of years ago that actually measured this. He looked at um, the degree of orthodoxy measured by, you know, adherence to your traditions, uh -huh. sort of key doctrines, uh, against um, uh, sort of your social penetration into the community. So the more of your friends that you go to church with— mm -hmm. Uh, that was one factor measured against the strength of your belief and your traditions, doctrines. And it, it, not surprisingly, it's kind of a straight-line correlation. Mm. So the more socially embedded you are in a community, the more likely you are to be committed to those principles. Uh. Right? And uh, which is why y you can definitely have a, a apologetical conversation with them about what the Bible teaches and whether we're saved by faith alone and these kinds of things. But my reading on the literature of why people leave Catholicism and join these kinds of groups— Generally, they don't leave because of doctrine. Um, they don't leave because of scandals. They leave because of interpersonal relationships. For, for most people who walk away from the church, they walk away because they found their lived experience of Catholic parish life to be toxic at worst or unhelpful at best. Okay. And they get drawn into communities that offer them a, a closer-knit uh, social circle mm. and um, and then— you know, and then teaching that they find more personally relatable. And so, you know, you, you typically can't apologetic people like that out of that situation yeah. without really addressing the human dimension, right? The human formation, the human relationship side. And and so friendship is the best base for beginning those conversations rather than, you know, to launch in beating them over the head with a catechism to really make relationship and to break bread together and, and to be the friend, actually. And that's yeah. that's the best path in. Frank, thanks so much uh, for your question. We do appreciate hearing from you. In a moment, we're going to get to the phones, though. And uh, let me give you that number, 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, 833-288-3986. Because it is a Friday, I recommend call early. Uh, because the phones tend to fill up rather quickly on Fridays. In a moment, we'll talk with Michael in Tulsa, Ashley in Iowa, and uh, hopefully you as well at 833-288-3986 for Call to Communion. 
called Communion on this Friday afternoon here on EWTN. Our phone number 833-288-EWTN if you have a question for Dr. Anders or if you'd like to explain to us uh, what is stopping you from becoming a Catholic, 833-288-3986. Let's uh, lead off here today, if you're ready now, with uh, Ashley. Is that right? Yeah, Ashley is next, uh, listening on the great Siouxland Catholic Radio, and you're actually going to Sioux City, Iowa, aren't you? Can't wait. Yeah, that'll be fun. Ashley, happy Friday. What's on your mind today? And actually, I get tickets for you, Dr. Anders. I'm very excited for that. Oh, fantastic. Looking forward to it. Yeah. Um, So I have a question. So my kids go to Catholic school. um, They're 10 and 7, and we love the Catholic school. um, But I have a Protestant friend that we tried um, their Baptist Awana program. And it's a fun, great program. Um, Sometimes I feel like with the Catholic school, um, religion becomes a class, and so my kids see it as like a variation of history class, and they don't have, I worry that they're not growing like in that relationship part with Jesus as much, they're just, um, and so I just didn't know if it was a bad thing to, for seven and, um, you know, like a Protestant type Basically, it's 20 minutes of gym time, 20 minutes of um, basically scripture memorization type learning, and then like 20 minutes of like a Bible story. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. Did you get all that? Uh, yeah, I got it. I got it. She, the phone she, call she's was Catholic. Up. Her kids go to Catholic schools. Yeah. Uh, religion in Catholic schools is a class, she feels like. Um, and uh, she doesn't think that it's maybe as effective in inculcating a kind of uh, warm, heartfelt spirituality into her children, a deep appreciation of the Catholic faith and their relationship with Christ and the Church. And she's wondering about the advisability of letting them participate in a Protestant Bible study, in particular the Awana program, which I am familiar with, by the way. Yeah. So, well, that depends on whether you want your kids to cultivate a Protestant spirituality or a Catholic one, honestly. (laughs) And and the, uh, you know, the... I. The, the way to cultivate a relationship with Christ as a Catholic is distinctive and different from the way it will be cultivated in Awana or in a, in a Protestant community. And, um, you know, so the, uh, the way to overcome that, I think if you think there's a deficit in the way the faith is lived, expressed in the, in the Catholic school that you attend, is to incorporate your faith into your family life and your relationship with Christ as a Catholic into your family life and let your kids... Um, be brought up within that. I mean, the church, the, the family is the domestic church, and it's meant to be a school of faith, the first school of faith for the children, and that's that's really where they can learn that uh, at the uh, at the feet of their parents, and maybe, maybe their grandparents or their cousins or whoever else they have mm, in their life. Yeah. Um, now, the you know, the Catholic school, in theory, a Catholic school uh, is meant to uh, have Catholicism be not just a class that you take at 10 o'clock on Wednesdays, but something that pervades the culture of the school. The liturgy should be celebrated in the school. And, you know, you'd like to have more Catholic teachers than not, and the administration should be Catholic, and Catholicism should penetrate all of the curriculum, including the way we learn to treat one another and uh, reverence one another as made in the image and likeness of God, these kinds of things, mm-hmm. the kind of care that we take, the solicitude for people as individuals and the love of, of them as children of God, all that should really penetrate a Catholic school, make it a distinctive kind of environment. Um, it's not bad 
to have religion presented as an academic course in a Catholic school because what a Catholic school can do that, say, a parish school of religion cannot do as effectively um, by treating religion as an academic course, if it's done intentionally, is you can bring the faith into conversation with culture. Uh, and, and, and that has to happen at an intellectual level. You know, for a conversation about, for example, uh, how do we integrate Catholic faith with a modern scientific worldview? Mm. Right? That, 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 that kind of question is ideally treated in a Catholic school. Um, and you're going to get a very different answer to that question if you ask it in a Catholic school from if you ask it, say, in a fundamentalist Protestant school. Now, that's a critical question for knowing how to be a Christian in the modern world. How do we integrate our Christian faith with a modern scientific worldview? And the answer you'll get within a Catholic context will be profoundly different than the answer you get in a fundamentalist school. And we could kind of go down the list. How, how do you think about even issues like public policy or morality, uh, uh, about political engagement, um, about uh, service to one's neighbor, about social justice. All of these things are going to have a distinctive Catholic answer that will, again, be very different from the answer and the culture and the ethos that you pick up in a Protestant fundamentalist school. So uh, I, I hear your concerns about what you regard as objective deficits in your Catholic school, uh, but if you turn to the Protestant institutions to shore up those deficits, you will be given Protestant culture, Protestant answers, and Protestant spirituality. Now, there are some kids that can go through that as Catholics and be left unscathed, um, you know, uh, others not so much. And the number of families that have been drawn away from the Catholic Church for exactly these kinds of reasons and in these kinds of ways is mammoth. Mm -hmm. Wow. Is that uh, helpful for you? Thank you for your call. Is that helpful for you? Yes, it is. I didn't realize there was so much difference. I mean, we would never leave because of the Eucharist, but um, I, ne I didn't realize the significant differences. So oh, yeah. thank you so yeah. much. Thank you. Appreciate your call. That opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Uh, just to put a little button on it here, uh, that dinner with Dr. David Andrews at uh, Siouxland Catholic Radio to benefit those good folks there. Uh, that's going to be Monday, September 18th, and uh, it is a dinner with a uh, private reception beforehand. If you go to SiouxlandCatholicRadio.com, you can find out more about that. Siouxland catholicradio.com. I think, don't quote me on this, but I think today is the last day to buy those tickets, so you may want to check that out. All right, back to the phones now. Here is Michael. Michael's in Tulsa, listening on the great Oklahoma Catholic Broadcasting. Hey, Michael, what's on your mind today, sir? Well, I was speaking to a friend the other day who's not Catholic, and I was talking about feast days, and told him today we celebrate the birth of the Virgin Mary, and he just kind of laughed. He isn't that a little odd that it's under the sign of Virgo? Did they do that deliberately? And I didn't know how to answer. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So uh, there is no significance to this uh, statistical anomaly that a Catholic feast day falls under a particular astrological sign because the Catechism of the Catholic Church completely and utterly rejects uh, any reliance upon astrology in any capacity. And I so, believe the technical word you like to use is hooey. It is total hooey, yes, All exactly. Right. So I, I can assure you that uh, that the Church does not consult uh, the stars, literally, 
uh, in order to determine the date of Catholic feast days. What a relief. Thank you so much uh, for your call. Call to communion on this Friday afternoon here on EWTN. Sharon's watching us on YouTube today. Sharon says, well, I used to be Catholic. I left years ago because some things were not Bible-based. Many things that I were taught in school, things that I observed were just wrong. One of them was I saw how big contributors' names were being posted on plaques. Also, praying to Mother Mary and many more things. Any thoughts there? Um, yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So, uh, first of all, I'd like to address the premise of the question, which is that if something is not biblical— then I shouldn't do it. And presumably, if something is commanded in Scripture, then I should. That the Bible is the rule of faith for Christian life. Now, that principle, the Bible is the rule of faith for Christian life, is itself not in the Bible. That is not a biblical principle. The Bible never references itself as the rule of faith for Christian life. The idea that the Bible is the rule of faith and the exclusive rule of faith is actually an invention of Protestant tradition from the, 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 the brain of, uh, of Martin Luther. And it's not actually found in the Bible itself. The, the Scripture gives a different criterion for determining the content of Christian faith in practice, and that is the tradition of the Church. The Bible explicitly references the tradition and the teaching authority of the Church as the rule of faith for Christians. So Jesus says to the disciples, go make disciples of all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teach them everything I have commanded you, and I'll be with you to the end of the age. See what he did? He commissioned people, individuals, 11, told them to hand on what he had taught, which was oral tradition, and promised to accompany them forever. When St. Paul writes to the Corinthians, and he, he proposes a doctrinal standard to guide their liturgical celebrations. He says, the tradition that I receive from the Lord, I hand on to you. And if anyone wants to have a different practice, if anyone wants to dissent from this, know that we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. See, he points to the liturgical consensus of the churches as the rule of faith and practice, and to the tradition as handed on by Jesus. And when the, when the scriptures are actually written, they themselves look back to that antecedent tradition as the rule of faith, not to their own texts. Mm -hmm. And then they never speak of themselves that way. So, you know, St. Paul doesn't write to the Corinthians and say, you know, if you have a question about the faith, uh, be sure to gather up all those letters that purport to have been written by apostles and put them together in a pile uh, and then and consult those letters and those alone for your uh, rule of faith on Christian practice. He, he, he explicitly doesn't do that, right? Yeah. And so that's, that's just a... It's an, it's an unbiblical criterion. Um, so, you know, second of all, I don't see that Scripture addresses the question at all of where you should put contributors' names <laughs> and whether plaques are acceptable or not, right? Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't think yeah. that it addresses that question one way or the other. Um, uh, as far as praying to Mary is concerned, the idea that the saints pray for us would be okay even if it weren't in the Bible for the reasons that I've already stipulated. Mm -hmm. But in fact, it is in the Bible. It is in the Bible that the saints pray for us. So you could take a look, for example, at Revelation chapter 5, verse 8. Right? You could look at Revelation 8, verse 4. Um, you could look at the book of Tobit, 
chapter 12 or 2 Maccabees chapter 15 or 2 Kings chapter 13, for example, or the end of the book of Job, for example, where God says to Job's companions, I'm not going to listen to you guys, but I'll listen to my servant Job. Get him to pray for you, and I'll listen to him. Right? The idea that the saints, living and dead, the righteous, can intercede on behalf of those of us that are not as righteous, James says the prayer of a righteous man availeth much, uh, is woven throughout the Bible. It's part of biblical logic from, from day one. And it's also part of Christian practice from day one. It, pre, it precedes, you know, the, you reference the Bible. The Bible has a history to it, right? Uh, earliest texts of the Bible of the New Testament were probably St. Paul's letters. Some of those were written in the 50s. Um, uh, you know, the Gospels probably weren't until late in the century. You know, Gospel of John, maybe 100 A.D. Um, and they weren't gathered together definitively in a canon until the 4th century. The practice of seeking the intercession of saints is much older than that. It predates the Bible. Yeah. Well, there you go. And uh, Sharon, thank you so much uh, for your question today via YouTube. As as you were talking about this, and, and as I was reading the question about, uh, you know, honoring contributors, what's wrong with that? Uh, I, I'm, I'm thinking of my, my wife's uh, cousin, Ron, who was a big, back in Trenton, Ohio, was a big I think football star or basketball star. He then went on to teach at the school for I don't know how many years, decades. Went on then to the board of education, became the head of the board of education, and uh, shortly before he passed away, they dedicated the auditorium in his name. Well, you know, Scripture teaches you know, Romans yeah. chapter thirteen says, "Render to each one what is his due, honor sure. to whom honor." Sure. Absolutely. Call to communion here on EWTN. Our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Here is James now in Windsor, Ontario, Canada, watching us today on YouTube. Hey, James, what's on your mind today? Uh, thanks for taking my call. I was just wondering if there's, if Dr. Andrews uh, can give me something to read or some research where I can find out on how the spikes... Uh, in, when Jesus was crucified, how those spikes were removed, from what I understand, they were inserted with tremendous pressure, and I was just curious how they were removed before Jesus was taken to the tomb. That's my question. Yeah, thanks. So there is no description of that in Scripture, and there's no description that I know of of that in uh, in Roman history. The Romans, you know, they wouldn't have written a detailed description of the process of crucifixion any more than they would have written out, say, the instructions for cleaning the city sewers. Yeah. Because it was, that was the same kind of thing. You know, the, the criminals of the lowest class were crucified, and the Romans gave them very little thought. And by and large, most of the time, they didn't take them down. They just left them to decompose on crosses. Mm -hmm. um, I know of a couple of uh, efforts to reconstruct the physical events of the death of Jesus Christ, uh, one of them by a friend of ours, uh, Floyd Hosmer, who was a medical illustrator yes. at, uh, at, at Mayo uh, Clinic, who mm -hmm. wrote an article for the Journal of the American Medical Association um, uh, back in, I think, 1986, called On the Physical Death of Jesus Christ. And that one's widely disseminated online. Fascinating article, yep. too. And, and his illustrations were just absolutely phenomenal. Uh, James, is that helpful for you, sir? Uh, it is. Thank you so much. We do appreciate your call. Glad that you're listening to us in Canada. Call to communion here on EWTN. Our phone number, 
288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you prefer uh, shooting us an email, always glad to get those. And the address is ctc at ewtn.com, ctc at ewtn.com. You know, on each of our live shows, we like to do, uh, you know, at least one, maybe two or three emails per show, and then once a month or so, we'll uh, clean out the mailbag and answer a whole passel of questions, and we love to to do that. Again, the address, ctc at ewtn.com. Lots more straight ahead on this Friday edition of our program. My recommendation is call now while there's a couple of lines available for you, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Stay with us. So, what's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Let's talk about that here on EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Andrews. couple lines open for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Our friends in Indiana need to hear from you next week. Catholic Radio Indy is airing their Fall share Drive next Wednesday and Thursday. So if you're listening to any of their five great stations throughout Indiana or anywhere, please support your EWTN Catholic radio station. Let's go now to James in Metairie, Louisiana, listening on Catholic Community Radio. Hey there, James. What's on your mind today, sir? Uh, yes, thanks for taking my call, uh, Dr. Andrews. Um, uh, yeah, I had a question about the... Um, the crucifixion of Jesus and how the stigmata always uh, appears to people that have that in their hands and not their wrist, and you know, been told that uh, he can only be held up by his wrist, that his hands would not hold him up. And I thought, well, why is the stigmata always in the hands? And you know, I'm a cradle Catholic. I'm 76 years old, so I've always looked at the crucifix, and most of them still are, with the uh, nails in his hands. And I'm thinking, you know, with my brain, the way the way it works, anyway, I'm thinking, well, nobody says his cross was not laid, made like, straight up and down at perpendicular at 90 degrees, and I'm thinking possibly it was at 45 degrees, because he seemed to have suffered much more, well, we know how much he suffered, I don't think we can even comprehend how much he suffered, but uh, I guess if he was at 45-degree angle, in fact, the nails could have been in his hands, and he would have been held up. So I guess that's my question. <laughs> yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So, look, I'm not an anatomist, nor the son of one, but my understanding from the literature is that as that the bones in the hand are not capable of supporting the full weight of a human body uh, where the wrist would be. Uh, as to your question about whether or not he would be laid at an angle, because you 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 seem to have a conviction, a kind of a, a, a desire, as it were, to find a way to save the hands as the locus of the nails— because you're motivated by the history of the uh, stigmatists in the Catholic tradition that tend to get the wounds in their palms. Mm. So I I have another way of doing that. This is my personal opinion. You are certainly not obligated to accept my opinion, but this is my personal way of accounting for that. The history of Christian iconography, as you have correctly mentioned, almost universally represents the nails in the hands. How do I understand that? Well, um, Depictions of Christ's crucifixion uh, are not super early. 
And in fact, the, I think the earliest icon we have of Christ is as Christ the teacher. He's actually in the garb of a Hellenistic philosopher, uh, not of the crucifixion. Mm. Um, that's a later artistic image. The, crucifixion, the crucifix as an artistic form comes a bit later. And by the time the crucifixion becomes a subject of artistic representation, crucifixion is no longer a part of Roman culture. Right, it's not a part of Christian culture. They don't execute people by crucifixion. And so uh, the artists who were trying to render the crucifixion mm-hmm. will just had to rely on the biblical account. And there really isn't a description, right, explicitly. But, you you know, when St. Thomas appears, when Jesus appears to St. Thomas in the Gospel of John, he says, here, look at my hands. They go, oh, well, he must have meant his palms. And so it, once it enters into the sort of the, the history of art, it becomes the standard that becomes the, the archetypal form, if you will, of depicting the crucifixion. And the purpose of the stigmata, if they are visible, right, is as a kind of symbol, right, that affects the spiritual and moral imagination of the people of God. And I think that the Spirit of God knows quite well what people's expectations would be of a crucifixion. And since, I mean, the stigmatist is not actually crucified. Like the point of the thing is not to hang St. Francis up by his hands until he's dead, but to make him uh, understand his own identification with mm. the suffering Christ and to a certain extent to make that apparent to other people. It makes sense to me that the Spirit of God would do that in a way that would be most relatable to the, to the moral memory of that culture. James, thanks for checking in from Metairie. Call to communion here on EWTN. couple lines open for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Michael B. is watching us today on YouTube. Hey, Michael. Michael says, how important are the Pope's decrees and social involvement uh, regarding social justice, this uh, synod, uh, the WE Forum, not sure what that one is, is he infallible? And then Michael says, I am not a neo-Catholic. Yeah, okay. So y- you've actually mixed up categories here. So okay. I can't answer the question with one answer, mm. except to say that he's not infallible in 99% of his actions, okay? Which is not to say that he's not authoritative. You can be authoritative without being infallible. Sure. Uh, when it comes to the Pope's uh, teaching about social justice— uh, he operates in his normal magisterial authority. This is the ordinary magisterial authority of the Pope and of the bishops and of the uh, teaching office of the Church. And as such, Catholics are obligated to render a religious submission of mind and will to what the Pope says. And the Pope's encyclicals uh, and bulls and apostolic exhortations and the like enter into the patrimony of, of authoritative Catholic pronouncements and, uh, and it's the duty of Catholics and theologians to, to integrate that into their thinking. Now, that doesn't mean that a person has to uncritically accept everything that the Pope says in such documents, but they are, as it were, the official Catholic word on the subject. And so it would be really presumptuous and very wrongheaded, I think, to reject the Pope's teaching out of hand because it didn't conform to a person's antecedent ideological commitments. So let's, let's take two examples. Let us say that I am a deeply committed ideological communist, and I think that communism is absolutely the best way to go to bring about equity and justice in society. And lo and behold, I pick up Leo XIII's encyclical Rerum Novarum 
on uh, the social good and the rights of workers and so forth. And I read this first social encyclical, and lo and behold, I find out that Leo XIII rejects communism, right? It would be wrong for me to say, well, you know, Leo XIII, he's not infallible. I'm just going to throw this thing in the garbage because I'm already <laughs> decided that communism is the right way to go, mm. all right? Uh, by contrast, let's say I am an ideologically committed uh, capitalist, free market, Austrian economics, the whole nine yards. Ludwig von Mises, you know, von Hayek, I'm, I'm totally, no borders, no tariffs, uh, you know, no government regulation, no SEC, you 100% free trade all the way, baby. That's the way to prosperity. And I maybe I read some of the encyclicals of uh, John Paul II, Solicitura Socialis, for example, and I find out that, lo and behold, the Pope is not sold out 100% for, you know, pure unadulterated capitalism. Well, it would be wrong of me to throw the Pope's encyclical in the garbage just because he's got the wrong ideology from my point of view. Um, and in fact, the Pope addresses this exact dilemma in that very encyclical, Solicitudo Rei Socialis, and he says, what you have to understand is that the social teaching of the Church is not ideology. It shouldn't be evaluated in the same way that you would evaluate political or economic ideology. It's moral theology. It's moral theology. And you have an obligation to try to understand it and incorporate it into your thinking, and, and, and I need to challenge my ideological commitments against the measure of the church's teaching, which reflects 2,000 years of tradition, right? So doesn't make every papal pronouncement infallible, but does it is authoritative and generally contains a great deal of human wisdom and divine, divine wisdom because it's based on the revelation of Christ. Um, now, when it comes to the, to the Pope's um, sort of uh, policy interventions, um, again, I, I recognize the Pope has an authority to do these things. And so um, uh, I personally think that the idea behind this synod on synodality is a good one, because the way I understand it, having read the literature, look, I'll tell you about my own diocese. The Pope said everybody has to have a synod in their own diocese and consult the people of God on the condition of the people of God. And uh, people from my office went around and visited dozens of communities around the state in our diocese. And sat down, and there were folks that came forward and said, you know, this is the first time in my entire Catholic life I felt like the Church wanted to hear what I had to say. Wow. And folks went in suspicious. They thought, well, I don't know about the Synod thing. Isn't this just a cover-up for gay sex? Honestly, that's kind of the tout. Like, everybody wow. thinks that the Synod is some way to, to sneak a change in Catholic moral theology under the, under the curtain, you know? That's not how it is, right? And that's certainly not how we lived it. Once people understood this is an opportunity for you to actually share your lived experience with the pastors of the church and tell them about your pastoral needs and situation. It's not a way for, for the church to foist some kind of radical agenda down your throat. This is, a, this is an opportunity for the people of God to be heard. And folks who said, you know, we're, we're out here in the middle of nowhere, and we feel like nobody cares about us, and this is the first time someone's actually come out to hear what we had to say, that's, that's of tremendous value in the church. And if that's the spirit in which the thing is lived— uh, uh, we need more of that in Catholicism, right? I yeah. mean, we, Newman wrote a famous treatise on consulting the faithful in matters of belief, even, right? Which got him a lot of hot water, and then Leo Thirteenth made him a cardinal, you know. So uh, the Church does need to consult the people of God and, 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 and discern the pastoral needs of the situation and the concrete realities of their, of their daily lives, right? And that's, that, in my view, is what the Synod's about. But let's say you disagree with that, and you think, nah, no, I'm a, I'm a, a straight-up, you know, um, ultramontane, radical papist, 
uh, you know, the Pope's an absolute dictator and a monarch, and what the people think doesn't matter at all, and all we need is a, you know, some fantastic dictatorial Pope to lay down the law and tell everybody to get in lockstep and march behind him. Thank you very much. That's all we need. Don't need to listen to the people of God whatsoever. I think Pope is totally out to the left field. Let's say that's your point of view, right? Uh, which I think is wrong, but let's say that's your perspective. Then uh, um, when the Pope calls a synod on synodality, your attitude is, I've got my papal ideology, and I don't think that aligns up with what the Pope thinks, but he's the Pope and I'm not. He's the Pope and I'm not. So he has the authority to do this. And if the Pope says, go hold a synod in your diocese, I'm going to go hold a synod in my diocese. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. If the Pope says, distribute this encyclical, I'm going to distribute this encyclical. I'm going to obey. I'm going to obey because he's the Pope. Right? He has the authority to command yep. the church and set policy. Doesn't mean that a hundred years from now, historians might look back and go, well, you know, that, you know, John the 22nd, man, he did some crazy stuff, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and that, and, and, and history and subsequent popes and so forth will look back and evaluate uh, the pastoral interventions of a particular pontiff, either favorably or unfavorably. And clearly we can look back on the past and see popes that did stuff that was, that was really stupid, right? Mm, yeah. And that was a bad move. We shouldn't have done that. Um, but uh, here's a really—this puts things in perspective, I think. John Henry Newman, who's a saint, may one day be a doctor of the Church, um, uh, held a position on the First Vatican Council known as inopportunism. What that means is he believed the doctrine— he thought the Pope was infallible. Mm-hmm. He thought the Vatican Council taught the truth about the infallibility of the Pope. He also thinks he also thought that it shouldn't have. Mm. He said, true doctrine, I believe it. We shouldn't have proclaimed it a dogma. Interesting. And now, do I think Newman was right? It's beside the point. My point is that 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 a saint and the greatest theologian of the Catholic Church in the nineteenth century, who may one day himself be declared a doctor of the church, recognize that it is permissible for a person who has the requisite qualifications to agree with the teaching and disagree with its with its promulgation mm-hmm. that he can he can step back and be that uh, that subtly critical uh-huh. of the way a pontiff conducts himself and yet he obeyed there you go. Michael B., thank you so much uh, for your question today here on EWTN's Call to Communion. If you are new to EWTN, you may not know very much about our foundress, Mother Angelica. Well, you can now visit her memorial website. Just go to EWTN.com slash Mother Angelica. It's a, a wonderful site. You can celebrate her remarkable life. It's filled with photos, milestones, heartfelt stories, and, of course, Mother's wit and words that have inspired the hearts of all ages throughout the years. And, of course, there's a lot in there about the founding of this very network. Again, EWTN.com slash Mother Angelica. Do check it out. Let's go now to Tracy in Gillette, Wyoming, a first-time caller listening on the great Real Presence Radio. Hey, Tracy, what's on your mind today? All right, thanks for taking my call. I was My wife and I were having a discussion with a guy who was a fallen-away Catholic, who was arguing about the infallibility of the Bible because there's a, there's, a, there's a thing, I think, Matthew, where it says that Jesus was in the grave for three days and three nights. Well, that doesn't add up if he was crucified on Friday, and then Sunday morning he rose from the dead. So it was all part of a discussion about how we changed the Sabbath and how if, if that's true in Matthew, then 
Jesus should have been crucified on a Wednesday or something like that. So I was. Does that make sense? Yeah, sure. So, well, it depends on how you reckon days, doesn't it? Yeah. How, how does your friend know that the that the biblical or Jewish reckoning of the days is three completed twenty-four-hour periods? It's a good question. How does he know that? He's just yeah. asserting that. Right. Obviously, the biblical writers thought differently. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They they were reckoning days as, you know, if you're, if you if you touched the day, as it were, you were part of that day, you know. Yeah. Um, it's like I got in trouble one time when I was a little kid. I was about five years old, and I was standing inside the pantry cabinet at my house, and um, my father came over and he said, "Get out of the cabinet." So I scooted about a quarter of an inch forward, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like. I'm technically out of the cabinet, but it didn't go down so well. No, you know, no. kind of depended on a. This was more than a semantic difference, but it was a semantic difference about what constitutes in and out of the cabinet or in and out of the day in question. Uh, when it, uh, this this charge that that the Catholic Church moved the Sabbath, no, we didn't. The Sabbath remains Saturday, when Jews go to synagogue and worship, and and refrain from work. Primarily yeah. refrain from work. Mm-hmm. That's the Sabbath. Christians don't celebrate that Sabbath. We didn't move it. We don't celebrate it. We celebrate the Christian feast of Sunday, the day of the Lord's resurrection. It's a different feast. There you go. Tracy, thanks so much uh, for your call. I've actually been to Gillette, Wyoming. It is a cool little town. Uh, Very nice. Um, Enjoyed it. Uh, All right, let's go now to Jay, a first-time caller in North Carolina. Jay, what's on your mind today, sir? Good afternoon, Dr. Anders. Thank you. Um, I have heard um, of... And, and I want to use this term liberal in a generous way, and not to say it's necessarily bad, but I have heard that liberal Catholic bishops, more or less, when they encounter Protestants who wish to convert, they will say something like, mm, there's really no need for you to convert, stay where you are. And I have heard that this has been the approach of Pope Francis at times, uh, when it comes to matters of doctrine and and so forth, I've also read literature on this um, from an Anglican publication. So I wonder, would you say that's correct? Is that happening? And how would how do you think? What do you think about that? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So um, people have filled many books, and you could fill many more with crazy things that bishops have done. And uh, and are there Bishops, say, on the, the, the left side, the progressive side of the ideological spectrum, who uh, approach a kind of indifferentism with respect to Christian identity, such that they would tell Protestants, you don't need to become Catholic, you can stay Protestant. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Are there bishops on the far right and schismatic bishops that might say the same thing for very different reasons? Yeah, that's true, too. Okay. So dissent from the chair of Peter is not something, or, for the, or from the tradition of the Church, is not something that is limited to one end or the other of the ideological spectrum, right? And there have always been dissenters from the center of Catholic unity. I mean, that, that's, in fact, that's why there is a papacy, right? Because yeah. you don't know where the center of Catholic unity is until you have a pope, right? Because then it just becomes a matter of ideological factions pushing pushing back against one another. You got to have an adjudicator of that those mm. kinds of conflicts. Uh, church will always have schisms. It'll always have factions. 
It'll always have political parties because it's made up of people. And St. Paul actually talks about that in 1 Corinthians. He says there have to be factions among you because that's how we test, you know, the purity of the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's sinful. It's wrong to, to push back against Catholic unity that way. And the Church has always taken an attitude that, that, that Catholicity was more important than, than such total ideological conformity, right? And uh, I'll give you an historical example that is of no matter to anybody today. No one cares about this today, so it won't hurt anybody's feelings. Um, in the 16th century, late 16th century, the Jesuits and the Dominicans went at it hammer and tongs over the doctrine of grace. And they had some pretty esoteric theories about whether God grants efficacious grace uh, based on his, uh, his knowledge of future counterfactuals, which is something that I know keeps all of us up at late oh, at night. Yeah. You know, that was a big thing back then, I'm telling <laughs> you. And they held uh, a meeting in the Vatican called the Congregatio de Auxiliis to debate the issue in front of the Pope. And it lasted for two popes. Mm. And the final pope uh, heard the end of the debates, and he said, okay, go back to your theology schools and, and teach, and quit calling each other heretics, and I will sit on this, and I'll let you know when I make up my mind. And we've been waiting for 500 years, and the pope <laughs> hasn't made up his mind. In other words, their positions are irreconcilable. Sure. Like, they, they are mutually exclusive. They cannot both be right. And yet the church permits them both. Right? Yeah. Permits them both. Yeah. So, um, uh, yeah, that kind of stuff. And other forms of dissent do happen. Um, what do I personally think about that? And, and, and specifically, what do I think about the charge that, you know, it, it doesn't matter if you become Catholic or not? Well, look, I'm a convert to the Catholic Church. If I believed that, I wouldn't have joined the Catholic Church, right? Because there are, there are substantive differences in my life as a Catholic from when I was a Protestant. And if I didn't think those were good and right and true and beneficial, I wouldn't have become Catholic. Um, subjectively, as opposed to objectively, it is subjectively true that some people uh, live a more vigorous, virtue-filled spirituality as a Protestant mm-hmm. than some Catholics do as a Catholic, right? And it, it can happen that a person could cross over into the family of Catholic unity and be badly pastored and badly served and badly formed such that they didn't realize um, uh, the full benefits of their Catholic identity, mm-hmm. right? And and might look back on people from their former communion and say, well, you know, they had it better over there. Uh, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't become Catholic. It, it means you should make sure that people becoming Catholic get good formation and get good pastoral accompaniment and get community and get those things that they need to live a full Christian life as a Catholic, right? Um, but making those determinations in real time requires what Pope Francis calls discernment, you know? So, like, I, I was personally asked by a close family member one time, should I become a Catholic? I mean, what do I do for a living? <laughs> I'm sitting here telling people that being Catholic is worth it, right? It is. But in this particular instance, I doubted that this soul would cross the Tiber, and the church teaches that if you know the Catholic Church is the way to salvation and you don't go in, then you have a sin against your own conscience, right? And so I have to make a pastoral discernment. I have to make a judgment about what's the right thing to say in this instance. Mm-hmm. If I say, yes, you have to become Catholic, and they don't, I haven't helped them. But I'm not going to tell them, well, don't become Catholic, because I can't say that, because right. I think they should, sure. right? So what did I do instead? I said, um... You do know what I do for a living, don't you? <laughs> right? You know that I'm a Catholic apologist, and I get on the radio and tell people about 
the beauty and the glory and the wonder of the Catholic Church. You do know that, right? In other words, you already know what I think. You need to make up your own mind. I'm not going to compel your conscience. Yeah. And so there is a pastorally sensitive way uh, which believes in the full truth and authority and power of the Catholic Church that still seeks to accompany people in their own time according to their own conscience and their own state of readiness that can respect the integrity of their tradition, that can respect the goods that exist outside of the Catholic Church, and yet it doesn't fall prey to just kind of a blank indifferentism. Mm. Jay, thanks so much for your call. As we're heading out the door, this question from R.L. watching us uh, in the U.K. on YouTube. R.L. says, uh, I am converting to Catholicism at Easter time, and I've heard people talking about Opus Dei. What is it, and what can you tell me about it? Um, yeah, so uh, it's what you call a, a personal prelature in the Catholic Church. Uh, it is an organization um, that exists to form Catholics voluntarily in a particular spirituality. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is a, their basic charism, their idea is about attaining holiness in the world of work and family life in the lay state. And that really is kind of the spirit of the Second Vatican Council. This was a, a ministry that was conceived of before the Council uh, and in a culture where, uh, say, uh, a very clericalist view of the Church was much more in vogue at the mm, time, right? Yeah. So, like, there was a profound need to have a ministry that said, hey, lay people are Catholics too, you know, as it were. But that's the idea behind it. Okay. And the founder of that is now a saint. Yep. Jose uh, Maria, Maria Escriva. Exactly right. Well, we do appreciate that, and uh, we're delighted that you're watching us today in the U.K. Remember, EWTN is everywhere. That's why Mother Angelica said, you know, we've got to be where the people are. That's why EWTN appears on so many different platforms, whether it's radio, uh, even shortwave radio that goes all over the world. Obviously, all of the social media platforms that are out there, uh, Internet, television, newspaper, uh, a printed newspaper, That's where we need to be. That's what Mother Angelica said, and we believe it. We try to carry that out 24 hours a day here on EWTN. Dr. David Anders, have a wonderful weekend. Thanks, Tom. Hope that everybody has a wonderful weekend. Remember, we do this program Monday through Friday on EWTN Radio, 2 p.m. Eastern for our live show, 11 p.m. Eastern for the encore of that same show, which is uh, 8 p.m. on the West Coast. Check out the podcast anytime you wish. If there was something you heard on today's program and you'd like to hear it again, go to EWTN.com radio and then click on the word podcast. On behalf of our fantastic team, I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Thanks for joining us. Have that great weekend. We will see you on Monday right here on EWTN. God bless. God bless.